This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Kaylee Lines, in for Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more, including your holiday gift guide. That's right. And before we get to that, Kaylee, and I love that holiday <laughs> gift guide because there are some very high-end things that probably no one's going to buy from me, but that's cool. But there are things that I learned about that maybe I didn't even think I needed to know. We're also going to talk about Nike. We're going to talk about WeWork, two companies in the midst of sort of challenges of their own. Multiple challenges going on for those companies. Plus, it might be my favorite story of the week, Jason. Open source software has gone from a joke to the engine of the world's technology, and it's hidden in an Arctic cave. Yeah. Who knew that if you really wanted to understand where the world might go in case of disaster, it's hidden in a cave way, way, way up north. But first up, Jason, it's one of the biggest stories of the week and of the year. I know you guessed it. It's trade. So Kaylee, trade, obviously, it's a market driver. It's a business driver. It's a headline driver, to say the least. This trade war between the U.S. and China, trade writ large, it feels like one of the only things we talk about. Ever. Ever. (laughs) Sean Donnan, that's all he does. He is obsessed with trade, and that's why we love him. We love catching up with him. And his story in the magazine this week really talks about the contours of this trade deal, and maybe the contours aren't quite as ambitious as we once thought they might be. He joins us from Washington. So, Sean, tell us where we are and how big or how small this deal looks. Yeah, what we really tried to do with this piece, my colleague Jenny Leonard and I, who cover this on a day-to-day basis, is to step back and, and really look at the, the arc of this thing. And we have gone, it's worth remembering, from a carefully crafted plan to take on China and force some really uh, fundamental structural changes in China's economic architecture to what now is shaping up as a pretty narrow deal and some more talks to come. And we really have gotten there as a result of Donald Trump and his unpredictability, what some would say his impetuousness, uh, and all of those tariffs that he has thrown on the table uh, that have really changed the game here and that are going to have lasting consequences for what is really the most important economic relationship in in the world. Well, and what exactly are those lasting consequences going to look like? Because as this narrative is drawn out for the better part of 18 months now, it now kind of looks like maybe we're just going to get back to where we were at the start of all of this rather than somewhere fundamentally different than we were at the beginning. Yeah, so I think there's two big consequences here. One is is kind of the hard economic consequence, uh, the disruption that we've had from, from this trade war. There are now tariffs from the U.S. side on $360 billion uh, in imports from China. That's about 70% or so of those imports. Uh, that is a big drag for a lot of businesses uh, who rely on components from China or do manufacturing in China. Uh, it also is uh, uh, has hit uh, b- more broadly business sentiment, uh, and uh, the risk is also consumer sentiment down the line. There's a reason we were talking about fears of a recession uh, here in the U.S. in August, and one of the big reasons was the trade wars. The second big consequence is everyone agrees that uh, the U.S. or a U.S. administration, whoever was in the White House, had to take on China and really had to kind of renegotiate the rules 
of the relationship. Uh, Donald Trump went all in on that in some pretty brutal tactics when it comes to international economic diplomacy. There's nothing blunter than a tariff uh, when it comes to negotiating these things. And uh, he raised the stakes. And the question is, has he delivered? Will he have delivered? And what does that mean for the future? Can another American president come in and repair the relationship or have another go at it? And that is really going to define the relationship going forward. We've got a new level of hostility between Washington and Beijing that we really didn't have three, four years ago. Well, and Sean, you know, one of the things you mentioned in your piece talks about the relationship and some of the moments along the way that the president and the administration have had with business leaders, you know, who have stepped in at times to maybe try and convince him to do something different than what uh, he was thinking. And these are well-known names, the CEO of Walmart, CEO of Blackstone, CEO of Best Buy uh, and others. What role has business played in? if any, in shaping this narrative? Well, we know that there's, there's been two parallel conversations that have gone on between the president and his aides and between president uh, and people he respects and counts on for advice in business. It's not just those CEOs you mentioned. It's Steve Schwartzman. Uh, it's also people, donors like Sheldon Adelson and, uh, and, and mainstream uh, business figures like uh, Tim Cook from Apple, who really has all along been lobbying for uh, the Trump administration to take a more cautious approach or to be careful uh, what path it goes down because it does a lot of manufacturing in China and also relies on China in a big way as a market. So, you know, Trump set out to disrupt this economic relationship. That also means disrupting business relationships. And business has really been trying to kind of restrain him or at least put him on a path uh, to getting some meaningful changes that they do want. Uh, The businesses have long complained about things like the licensing process in China. The subsidies that big Chinese state-owned companies benefit from, also private sector companies, and that kind of unfair competition that you get from China, the intellectual property theft, and, and, and so on. Again, the big question as we kind of near the one year to go to the 2020 election is, has Trump's China gambit paid off for businesses? Has it really changed the equation? And that's Sean Donnan talking about his story on trade with Jenny Leonard. And Kaylee, one of the things that I really liked about this was if you've been following this and especially if you haven't, it's a great summation of both the strategy and the tactics, the twists and turns that this huge trade conversation has taken. It's a really great reminder of the fact that where we are now is nowhere even close to where we began about 18 months ago. All right, Jason, I got to start off with saying I love the headline on this next story. India's T-Series vanquished trolls and pranksters to become the world's most popular YouTube channel. So here to tell us more about it is Lucas Shaw from Los Angeles. He co-wrote this story with another reporter. I mean, Lucas, tell us more about T-Series. It's a Bollywood company. It's a film studio. It owns a bunch of music. What's their deal? It is the largest record label in India. It controls anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of the market, uh, which in India is one of the most music crazed countries in the country 
countries in the world. All their biggest movies, or at least most of them, feature singing and dancing in a way that the movies you'll see in the U.S. and Europe don't. And what T-Series has done over the past few years is kind of twofold. One is they've really expanded their film production. So they're, you know, they started off buying the rights to soundtracks, which is this weird business in India where before the movie even comes out, you sort of buy the right to release that soundtrack. Probably only one in every ten or twenty actually hits, but if that one hits, you make a lot of money.、And、that's how they. That's in many ways how they started. Then they start making their own movies, kind of leveling up, and they also expanded heavily on YouTube. And over the past few years, as YouTube and internet more broadly in India has taken off, T Series has been one of the biggest beneficiaries. You know, they went from having just 12 million subscribers a couple of years ago to now having, I believe, 117 million,、uh, which is more than than any channel by quite a bit. Well, and Lucas, one of the things you guys point out in this story, which I found so fascinating and didn't know before, is really just the way that media and music are consumed in India. To your point, it, it's just totally different, and and in some ways, I mean, not hard to get your head around, but surprising. Yeah, I mean, one of the the quirks from earlier in T Series history is, you know, the music industry in the U.S. and Europe. You sort of went from buying CDs, which was really the golden age of the music business, because you'd pay twenty dollars for a whole CD. You probably only wanted three or four songs. Then you had piracy sort of disrupt the model. Then you had iTunes came along. And it made it so that you could buy an individual song instead of having to buy the full album. That digital storefront in that we had in the West never really happened in India. So they went from kind of cassettes and CDs to having ringtones for a really long time was the one way that you could listen to music online. That was at one point T Series's biggest line of revenue, and then it went into streaming, which is where we are now. But whereas paid streaming has become kind of the biggest money maker for the music business in the U.S., Europe, and in parts of Latin America. Getting people to pay in India, which is a much poor country, has been a difficult proposition. Which has enabled YouTube, which is really the biggest free music streaming service in the world, not just in India but everywhere. Think about the way people use YouTube in the U.S., in England, across Europe. Music is the number one category、right. on YouTube, but in India that is magnified times ten, times a hundred. And so, if you look up globally the top, like the top fifty music channels in India in any given week, excuse me, the top fifty music channels in the globe in any given week, about half. Half of them are from India. I mean, how much more growth can they get on YouTube? Because India has a lot of people. A lot of people are digitally connected, but a lot of people aren't yet. There should be plenty of growth kind of ahead of it. So far, I believe there are six hundred, six hundred fifty million Indians connected to the internet. But this is a country with more than one point three billion, close to one point four billion people, growing at a rate where it's expected to surpass China as the most populous country in the world in in just a few years. And T Series will will definitely reap the benefits of that. You know, YouTube、uh, has I think two hundred fifty or three hundred million monthly active users in India. India is now the number one market for YouTube in the world, and most people at At YouTube、uh, and in the music industry, expect that to grow. That's why you've seen Spotify, Apple Music, a lot of paid streaming services launch in India in the past few years because they expect the number of people listening to music over the internet to skyrocket. Well, and for foreign companies coming into India, does that pose an existential threat to those like T Series, or is that an opportunity for them? I think it's more of an opportunity. You know, there is certainly a threat as as companies like Netflix try to make Indian originals. Maybe those movies are more popular than T series. But for the most part, they're going to rely on T series to try to get fans. You know, T series sees its future as having this this virtual cycle where they let's say they have a movie coming out that they're making. They upload a video to YouTube that's a song from that movie or that teases that movie. It gets a ton of attention. They make money from that from advertising. That promotes this movie, which then 
then it becomes a hit and it leads yours back to the YouTube channel to more music. And if you listen to big tech companies, Netflix, Amazon, you know, this is a little bit Pollyanna-ish of them, but they like to talk about how they're connecting people around the world to different types of culture and serving as these bridges. Sometimes that's not true, but in the case of T-Series, it's a really great example where YouTube has taken a record label from India, made it the number one channel in the world, and while the majority of its viewership comes from India, T-Series told me that 30 to 40% of their viewership comes from outside of India. That can be the diaspora in the UK, US, Canada, and it may be even just fans who decide they really like Bollywood. Right. Well, and it's such an interesting observation, too, in this week where Disney Plus is launching. And I feel like we're talking in a whole different way about business models, consumption of media, global brands, uh, as you say. And so given that, where does this company sort of fit in to the global landscape as all of these companies have increasingly wide ambitions? I think they become a major supplier. That's at least the ambition, right? Is they've, they say that they're already talking to both Netflix and Amazon about selling them shows. Disney Plus, which launched in the US this week, uh, is going to expand globally. It's going to go to Western Europe in 2020. Uh, it will probably go to parts of Asia at some point, although Disney has its own streaming service in India called Hotstar. And there'll just be a desire for local language programming because as we have services that exist all around the world, there's a recognition that U.S. programming alone is not enough. It's something that Netflix has really been a leader in. Yes, Netflix has hundreds of original series and movies and documentaries that are in the English language, but they're also going to make more than 100 shows next year that are in other languages, mm. and that can be in Swedish, it can be in German, uh, and then it can also be in Japanese, and T-Series is there to, to supply anybody who wants to come along and buy from them. I don't think the company sees itself as competing, as owning its own platform, if you will. You know, T-Series has no interest in going head-to-head -head with YouTube. YouTube is just its best distribution vehicle right now. Spotify is another distribution vehicle for it. And at another, and maybe down the line, that will be Netflix, Amazon, Disney+, and so on. That was Lucas Shaw chatting about his T-Series story. And Jason, this was so interesting to me because it's a Bollywood film studio, it's a music owner, and it's a YouTube channel. I mean, they have so much going on here. Well, and it's one of these reminders as well, this notion that Hollywood, what a massive industry, but also the size and scope, candidly, of the Indian consumer economy. I think we underestimate or even forget how powerful that is for global companies and domestic companies there in India. Especially considering only about half of them are even online to this point. So it's definitely an interesting story to watch. Ebenovi Williams is here at the sneakers arms race. What's going on? Yeah, so a couple years ago, Nike released a running shoe that was significantly better than any other running shoe on the market from a, from a speed and a recovery standpoint. And it became a big deal for, you know, average Joe runners like the three of us, but it became a bigger deal in competitive and professional circles uh, where, you know, the difference between a lot of these runners can be seconds over an entire marathon. Uh, Nike's shoe, which builds itself as 4% more efficient, you know, over a marathon, that's a couple minutes, right? That's a huge gap. So the shoes became a huge deal in the professional world where the people who were wearing them were, were setting records and winning races. And a lot of the people who were not wearing them uh, were not having the same success. So I guess the question is, is that fair? Yeah, so this is the major question. And, and as a caveat, you know, every other shoe company right now is working to reproduce what Nike has. There's a carbon fiber in these shoes. The, the forefoot is a little steeper, so it kind of rocks you forward. It's new lightweight foam. You know, I've spoken to a number of designers at a number of other companies. Everyone is, is working on repl replicating exactly what Nike did. Um, but 
as they do that, Nike is working on whatever it thinks is faster and faster. Um, and, and I think the fear in the industry is that, you know, Nike's a $36 billion revenue a year company. Most of these companies saw Coney Brooks much, 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 much smaller. Um, that, that Nike may be able to kind of keep iterating their way ahead of the pack and therefore consistently have the fastest shoes on the market. Well, and you make a really important comparison in your story back to something I think we all remember from the Olympics a few years back, which was those sleek swimsuits that led to a bunch of records being broken and then ultimately got banned. Exactly. Yeah. Back in the you know late 2000s, before 2010, um, those long Speedo swimsuits, which Michael Phelps was wearing, over 100 world records were broken in those suits. And the, the governing body for swimming came out and said, listen, we can't do this anymore. You know, the swimsuit can't cover this amount of your body. You know, some of the materials in that suit, you know, that were helping with buoyancy can't do that anymore. Uh, the, the reason why I think the shoe story is so interesting right now is because the IAAF tracks governing body is now looking at this exact thing, right? You know, they've convened athletes and scientists and sports ethicists, and they're getting together right now. And they're saying, listen, what do we, or do we do anything to kind of clarify our rules? Because right now the rules are very uh, are very vague and opaque. Well, and that begs the question, how hard of a line is that to draw when it's a okay performance enhancement? It just makes you run better to this is now a, putting others at a competitive disadvantage. We really need to rein this in. Yeah, and that's a great question. And it's not as easy as maybe it was for the swimming governing body, right? They could theoretically outlaw some of the materials. I've heard people say there shouldn't be allowed carbon fiber plates in shoes. Uh, other people say, you know, the the, the forefoot and, and heel height, or maybe the springing and the efficiency. There's different kind of metrics you can maybe use to draw the line. The funny thing is everyone in the shoe world wants no restrictions, right? right. Whether you're Nike, whether you're Brooks, whether you're Salcone, everybody says, you know, we want to be able to create great technology. And if it continues to make runners faster and faster, great. And the truth is that that helps other runners, right? The, if you go to starting lines of the marathon, so many people are in these Nike shoes because they're faster and they're more efficient, right? So Adidas, all these other companies, even if you're not Nike, just feel like, listen, if I can make a better shoe, it's right. going to help me sell them to the masses, not just to put them on the on the feet of Olympians. Right. And that helps my business as well. Well, and it's interesting, too, you think about other sports, especially that are widely played by consumers, whether it's tennis or golf. I mean, the technology revolutions in those sports have been massive over the last 50 years. Yeah. And the, and the really fascinating thing, and track is also a good example, right? You know, if you go back 80 years, they were running on cinder block track, right? And now they're running on a much faster surface. Um, but the main difference to that to me is that that was a lot of those were, were, were technology iterations that were available to everybody, right? Yeah. As soon as the track got better, everyone got faster, yes. right? This is a situation where if you're a Nike athlete, you got faster the moment Nike put out these shoes. But if you were a Brooks athlete or you were some, an athlete of a different company, you know, you're kind of waiting for the engineers at your company to make you as fast as the, as the other person got boosted. And this is the fear. I think I spoke to Ryan Hall, who's a former professional uh, runner. And, and one of the things he was saying is that he fears that if Nike continues to make the fastest shoes, everyone who wants to be on the podium at the Olympics, at trials, at world championships is going to be wearing Nike. And when Nike fully curbs the market on athletes, they, they kind of have already, but once they fully do it, then they can essentially set the price for whatever they want to pay these guys. And that's Eben Novi Williams talking about Nike. And it's complicated for Nike, right, Kaylee, in the sense that they are so closely associated with running. The roots of the company are there. It's been a huge driving force for them. But a new CEO coming in is going to have to deal with controversy in many forms. And it's so interesting to think about what the company is going to look like going forward, especially its running program. How do they rebuild it? What does it look like?
So, Kaylee, this week's cover story, it's about the ultimate backup drive. A cave in the Arctic holds the world's most important code. Bloomberg's Ashley Vance takes us inside with GitHub CEO Nat Friedman. So we're here in Svalbard at 78 degrees north latitude at the site of the future GitHub Arctic Code Vault. He's depositing 6,000 of the most popular open source projects in an archive inside this mountain. Open the vault! (laughs) This is how it works. The data is stored on a reel of film coated with iron oxide powder. The information can still be read by a computer, or if need be, by a human with a magnifying glass. How long will this last? We're confident uh, for a thousand, and we're aiming now to do a research project to document 2,000 years. Okay. 2,000 years? years. You think this could last up to 2,000 years? Let me catch you up on who Nat is. Nat's company, GitHub, is the main place people go to write open source code. Tens of millions of people hop on GitHub and create the applications that make the world tick, which is why Nat wants to protect it from terrorist hackers, electromagnetic pulses, and other unforeseen disasters. I mean, this is real one of the GitHub Arctic Code Vault, and we're gonna put it here in Svalbard under the ice for the next 2,000 years. I think 20 years ago, if you told someone that, you know, 20 years in the future, in the year 2020, all of human civilization will depend on and run on open source code written for free and put into almost every product in the world, I think people would say, like, that's crazy. Like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> like, the, you know, software is written by big professional companies. And, uh, and yet here we are. And, yeah. and so how much of this is just making sure we could restore our way of life? I'm overall pretty optimistic about civilization. Like, I think we can bet that, you know, humans will be thriving for a long time on planet Earth. And so another way to think about this is it's just like a time capsule. Like, there's this amazing moment in history where the whole world is starting to run on software. And that software is made out of open source. You know, open source is sort of in everything. That's Ashley Vance with a look at protecting open source code in an Arctic cave. And Jason, what really struck me is that the people who create this code, they're not paid to do it. They're not employed by any of these companies. And yet it's used by Apple, Twitter, Google, even in cars. It's wild. Well, and in a post-apocalyptic world, this could be the foundation for where we go from here. It's time now for another edition of Business Week Talks. This week, we, that would be me and Carol Masser, spoke with Imran Khan, the former chief strategy officer over at Snap. He's now the CEO of VeraShop. He talked about surviving the wrath of Jeff Bezos. Here's that conversation. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at VeraShop. Because do you think about Amazon constantly when you're thinking about strategy for you guys? Uh, I fundamentally believe that one company cannot solve all problems. And I think if you look at e-commerce right now, it's 10% of overall retail sales. And, um, and there's a funny story. In 2004, uh, I was a research analyst, and I went to see Netflix. And Reed Hastings told us that when he reached 7.5% penetration in the Bay Area, first Blockbuster was shut down. And he told us that when I get to 75 to 10% penetration nationally, the Blockbuster will go out of business. And that exactly happened. And then in advertising business, when Google and Facebook got 10% of digital ad dollar, we saw an accelerated dip, uh, disruption. And now digital advertising is 40% of all advertising. And if you look at online retail, is now 10% of overall retail sales. So I believe that in next 10 to 15 years, 
online retail will be 30% of it. So we're going to see accelerated depreciation because this 75 to 10% is the magic number when things start really falling apart. And so how do you capture that slice of it? You've been doing this, you've been live for just a few months now. What are you learning about the marketplace that maybe you didn't know going into it? Yeah, I think the, in marketplace, what's really missing is a lifestyle e-commerce destination, right? So if you need your commodity disposable utility product, Amazon is phenomenal. And if you need your luxury product, you know, like you want to buy Lucci, Gucci bag or Louis Vuitton bag that you buy once a year, or you are a 0.1% of world's population that that's all you buy, you know, you have a great relationship with those very expensive brands. The think about it, for your everyday luxury product, you know, for everyday lifestyle product, there is no real destination to go. You know, you go to either brick and mortar stores or you go to this boutique place. Uh, and that's also happening at a time that we're seeing explosion of direct-to-consumer brands, right? Everybody is building direct-to-consumer brands. So there is no place for consumers to go find, discover new brands, find the brands they love and discover new brands. So we are creating a brand discovery platform where you can find all the cool brands for your everyday luxury platform and with the convenience of Amazon. We now have the fastest free, fastest free online shipping in the marketplace, free one-day shipping. Uh, we put our customer support number on the top so that if you want to call, you can talk to our customers. You know, and I read every customer support emails. And so we really stand for convenience, we stand for quality, and we stand for discovery. One of the ways that you are sort of grabbing share, it seems, is through influencers. Uh, that is well known to a lot of the influencers in this room. What have you learned about them? Because it's not so easy to identify the right people, to figure out the right, essentially, business model around that. And How have you not, cracked that code? And it's not inexpensive sometimes. Yeah, we're not doing that much with you know, uh, influencers. To be completely honest with you, I have a philosophy is do completely opposite what the, the world is doing. Yeah. You know, if you look at in New York City, you will see our outdoor campaign in the taxi top, or if you take the subway, you, know, uh, you will see a, a very sharp brand train. You know, I think, so fundamentally, I believe that consumers are smart. And if, and they understand the authenticity, you know, and, and, and the thing is that if influencers are too commercial, and they're promoting too much of the product, I think it doesn't convert very well. Mm -hmm. So you really, really have to understand that when you in engage with the influencer, is there an authentic relationship? Because I, I think you really, really have to appreciate that if you push your product in an inauthentic way, it's actually a huge turnoff for consumers. Right. Because consumers know that you're trying to dupe them, right? You know, the buff, when we started the company, we call it Verishop. And what is Verishop? Verified shop because we wanted to build trust. You know, the world is going from fake news to fake people to fake product. Mm. And we wanted to build this trusted platform. And, and so you want to do marketing that you want to engage in a marketing in a trusted way. And is it right, one million shoppers? Or not yet, by the, by the end of the year? You have a free one day shipping right now. But no, in terms of the number of shoppers that are on your site right now? Oh yeah, I think by year end, uh, we'll have uh, a million unique shoppers on a monthly basis. And all right, so... We need to switch gears. Yeah, we got to switch gears. We got to move fast. Um, when you talk about turnoffs, one of the biggest turnoffs it feels like for the market this year and for a lot of people was WeWork. You've got some thoughts on this. Uh, you've been watching this market as a banker, as an executive, as an entrepreneur. What happened? What went wrong as you distill it down with WeWork? Uh, the one word is corporate greed, right? Uh, I think the key thing is 
Whenever we give someone money, you give them your trust. It is a fundamental thing that people don't appreciate that, that when an investor or forget about investor, your friend or your parents or your uncle or an, an investors give you money, they give you the trust. And, and when you take that money, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to live by the trust they give it to you. And, and I think oftentimes we saw that the corporate executives don't appreciate the trust that investors give it to them. Mm -hmm. And, at, and uh, at WeWork, we saw the gross, gross negligence of that trust. And You're talking about Adam Newman. Yeah, yeah, executive level, yes. And the corporate greed is to a level that fundamentally I didn't see the, since the world of 1999-2000. Well, what about the role of SoftBank in this, right? The big investor, obviously, in WeWork. And what about the role of investment bankers, certainly, when they tried to take it public? And obviously, all of a sudden, all these issues came out. Yeah, you know, I Our think... responsibility of investment bankers. So, two different questions. Uh, you know, I think, look, I think SoftBank, as an investor, you have to make two decisions, right? One, you have to analyze the investment as a standalone investment opportunity. And we can argue whether WeWork was a good investment or a bad investment from an investment lens perspective. But what SoftBank and as an investor, so you always have to trust the management team you give them the money. Yeah. And if they don't follow through it, you know, I think it's very difficult for an investor. So I actually sympathize with SoftBank. I know everybody blames SoftBank, but I actually sympathize with SoftBank because they gave money to someone who completely turned around and trying to, didn't respect their trust. And uh, with regards to investment bank, look, I think, you know, clearly investment bank could have higher standard of due diligence. But, you know, the good news is they did the due diligence and they disclosed all this information. But and that's so late, how we found it feels out. like. Do you feel like it was too late in the process? I mean, this was a company that was around for a while. I think investment banks, they couldn't have disclosed it before the filing anyway because the company would not let them disclose it. And that was Verishop co-founder Imran Khan speaking with Carol Masser and myself at Bloomberg's Sooner Than You Think Summit just a couple weeks ago. As so many things seem to do these days, this next story started with a tweet, a series of tweets, really, uh, and it was all about credit cards. It took on a life of its own over the next several days, ensnaring in some ways Apple, Goldman Sachs, the credit card industry, misogyny, algorithms, all of it. Uh, we're going to get into that with Sri Natarajan. He covers Goldman and Wall Street for Bloomberg. This credit card hailed as this revolutionary thing, and yet over last weekend, it took on a different tone. What happened? Right. I mean, this all started with a series of tweets from a tech entrepreneur, David Hansen, who applied for the Apple card and started complaining that his credit limit was 20 times the size of his wife's credit limit, even though both of them share the same finances, uh, have joint accounts, same spending power, had the same income when it came to the field when Apple Card was trying to determine their credit limit. And yet there was this huge disparity. Posts immediately gained traction online. A lot of people shared similar experiences. And to add insult to injury, and perhaps the embarrassing bit here for Apple was Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak said, wait a minute, I face the same issue. Before you know it, a regulator saying, we want to figure out how these credit risk assessment tools work. We're going to probe Goldman and we're going to probe this Apple card issue to see if there are some biases in the algorithm. So as an algorithm, but how much blame does Goldman have to take here 
Is it just the algo or, you know, is there something that Goldman can really do to fix this? Look, in in many ways, I I truly believe that... Apple and Goldman, two marquee names in the world of tech and finance. But what you have here is those two have become lightning rods over an issue that has been bubbling for a while. People have tried to figure out, as there has been this mission creep of tech in the financial services space, is trying to figure out that innovation keeps up with uh, the important regulatory factors needed, make sure that it doesn't come with its own set of biases. Computers are supposed to stamp out human risk and those errors, but in, in, in other ways, are they sort of reinforcing some of the issues we've faced for a long time? And that's what folks are trying to figure out. So it's possibly not just limited to Goldman. It probably affects a larger set of the credit card industry. But for Goldman, this is baptism by fire. Remember, they haven't done this for long. Consumer-facing businesses are new for them. And that's why maybe they are facing this sort of a unique challenge in a way. Right. And and taking a step back, I mean, let's remind people, this card was hailed in many ways for all the reasons you just described, Tree. This notion that Apple, of course, anything it puts its name on, if it's getting into a new business, people are paying attention. Goldman, as you say, getting into the consumer business in a new and different way and partnering with Apple. This was unveiled by relatively new CEO David Solomon, I believe, with Tim Cook at a big Apple uh meeting, which have, you know, sort of drama and pomp and circumstance all their own. What was this meant to be in the market, this card? Well, this was supposed to be something revolutionary in many ways, right? Uh, both David Solomon and Tim Cook in their respective earnings calls said this is the most successful credit card launch ever. I mean, they didn't really back it up with many statistics, but for now, we'll take them uh, for what they said. Uh, it's only two months in. We, we've seen that they've already made more than $10 billion in uh, loans. Well, not loans, but credit lines. Yeah. So it's clearly had a good start. Uh, this was supposed to be the time when they could sort of unwind and celebrate the fact that they got a good launch in. Instead, they're facing this sort of mini crisis. What actual tangible penalty perhaps could Goldman actually face here? Of course, they're being probed, but is there a law that they are potentially breaking and that they're going to get in trouble? Part of the, in trying to answer that question, you also have to think about what's the precedent here. And uh, I, I have to think that when you're looking into algorithmic fairness, this all has to be fairly new. It's uh, People have been talking about it for a while, but it is starting to gain more attention now. In June, uh, you had lawmakers in D.C. saying, we want to make sure that fair lending practices are being applied uh, and make sure that there are no issues with that. So you don't really know, where, hey, this is going to be a $10 million fine or a $50 million fine, slap on the wrist or something worse. We really don't know anything about that. And what makes it worse is Goldman, for instance, says, there is no discrimination, guys. We're not you know, classifying by race or gender and taking decisions According to that, there is no intentional bias on our part. But consumer advocates are saying that's part of the problem. It doesn't have to be intentional bias. If it was intentional bias in a civil society, hopefully, it's easy to spot and root out. It's the unintentional bias that's harder. It becomes deeply entrenched. And by the time you become alert to the problem, you can't just flick a switch and say, you know what, let's reverse all this. Uh, and I think that's that's the issue that Goldman and Apple have to deal with here. That's the issue a lot of the financial services companies have to deal with going forward as they embrace technology more and more, because it does obviously come with several benefits. Well, and another question that's just raised for me in all of this, as Jason said, the inputs matter, but also algorithms kind of can teach themselves. Right. I mean, how do you control a self-learning thing. That's actually very fascinating because a lot of the discussion has revolved around this. You obviously control the factors you put into the uh, system, but many 
data scientists who've been opining on this on social media have said it is very hard to sort of reverse engineer why a decision was ultimately made as to why did the machine spit out the decision it did. Uh, you have a general sense, but it's very hard to get a very precise sense. And that's Sri Natarajan covering Goldman a different way this week, a different type of story because this collaboration, Kaylee, with Apple, much heralded, very successful in some ways, but man, that story really took a turn. I mean, this was supposed to be what they were calling the most successful credit card launch of all time. Maybe that's not the case. All right, Jason, we've been talking a lot about WeWork lately, and it's not just about corporate governance, a soft bank infusion, anything like that. Now we're going to talk about toxic phone booths, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. I didn't either. And when this story first broke a couple weeks ago, I just thought, wow, these guys can't catch a break. And then it just becomes this emblem in many ways. Ellen Hewitt has been following every twist and turn in and out of the phone booth, as it were. She joins us from San Francisco. So talk to us about these phone booths, because it's become kind of a thing. Yeah, and and same same as you said, Jason. I, I also had this thought when I first read about the phone booths. You know, they announced this issue first in mid October that they had you know thousands of phone booths that potentially had elevated levels of formaldehyde, which is a carcinogen, um, in their offices in U.S. and Canada. I remember thinking like. Ha- it was on top of so much other bad news about WeWork. You, you had to feel pretty bad for them. It seemed like an issue. But, uh, you know, as we spent some time in the weeks following trying to figure out what exactly happened, I, you know, I think you can trace some of the... Uh, some of the forces at play at WeWork that led to possibly this outcome of, of these toxic phone booths. So this, you know, the story starts at least from our point of view in, in October when this announcement was made, but the story in many ways actually begins a lot earlier, which is when WeWork decided to design in-house their own sound-insulated phone booths. So these are important pieces of furniture for WeWork offices because their offices are usually open plan. You know, if any of you work in an open plan office, you know it can be hard to make a private phone call that other people can't hear. And maybe if you don't want to bother your neighbors or anything like that. So, so WeWork makes these phone booths that are sort of single person only. They're about the size of, say, an airplane bathroom and have a door that folds in the same way. You can step inside sound insulated, and you can make a phone call or maybe like take a meeting. And and they were setting these up, you know, along hallways and in corners of their offices to give people uh, private space. And they were so important to WeWork that WeWork decided to actually start designing them themselves in-house as opposed to like buying them elsewhere. Um, and, and they were at, le- at first very proud of this. You know, there are other stories. Um, there's a past story in Fast Company from about a year ago in which one of their executives talks about how great it is that they did this their own design for the phone booths. Um, and it turns out, you know, it gets a little, you know, we, we did a lot of research and reporting and discovered, you know, there's kind of a complicated supply chain at play. But... Basically, WeWork designs the phone booth and then gets manufacturers in different parts of the world to make the phone booth. And one of their manufacturers, or maybe the only one in the U.S. and Canada, was a company called Premier XD. It's a company that makes commercial fixtures for the likes of Starbucks and other companies, you know, those kiosks that you might see in, like, a grocery store. They were making these phone booths, and they, um, you know, this was not you know, publicly known, but something that we talked about with former employees and that kind of thing. And 
they were making these phone booths, everything seemed fine until early summer when one of WeWork's biggest customers, UBS, which had used WeWork to redesign one of its headquarters in New Jersey, some of the employees at the UBS office noticed these phone booths smell funny. Like there's a weird smell when I'm in them or maybe I have some eye irritation and they alerted their managers. The company did a test and found these elevated levels of formaldehyde. So this is early summer. And keep in mind, WeWork didn't announce the formaldehyde issue until mid-October. Right. So there's several months at play here where there's, um, there's just, you know, UBS had told WeWork of the issue. WeWork actually starts talking to vendors in August about maybe replacing or, or replacing future phone booths with new ones. Um, and then it, it kind of, and actually in September, Premier, the maker of the phone booths, actually suddenly shuts down with no warning. Some of its workers are left stranded with no severance. Uh, there's all sorts of, there's kind of a like in, in the background, like a, a series of events that leads up to the announcement of the phone booths. And that's kind of what we get into in this story. Well, and now WeWork is reinstalling phone booths of the exact same design, just now a different manufacturer, but telling people, well, wait, don't go in yet. We're not entirely sure they're safe. They're still holding some of the existing phone booths for further testing. I think, you know, and to their credit, they're being very careful, but it does seem like they also took some time to announce to their major, you know, to their customers in their co-working spaces that, that there was an issue with these phone booths. And so there are customers who are upset. They feel like their health has been put at risk by something that they totally didn't expect, which was the phone booth that they use at work, maybe to get a private moment or to take a phone right. call or to hold meetings in. I mean, can you talk about the uphill climb that the future CEO of We Companies has to face here? I mean, what do, where do they start? It just seems like such a difficult job and one that will be watched very carefully. I think we've seen similar pattern play out with uh, Dara Kasprashahi at Uber. You know, he's taking over the troubled company from a very public CEO, someone who had a lot of ties to the spirit of the company as the founder and then, um, you know, was sort of ousted in a dramatic way. So anyone who steps into the top job at WeWork is certainly going to be thinking about what happened at Uber, and and they're going to be facing, I think, similar problems, having to establish kind of a new culture that still feels, you know, um, comforting to existing employees and making them want to stay because they're, you know, as the company gets ready to um, continue to do layoffs, they are facing really bad morale. You know, every time I talk to current WeWork employees, they tell me, People aren't coming into work. People are scared. People are feeling unmotivated. And you can't blame them. They have had a lot of shifts of leadership at the top. The future of the company feels unsure, even though, of course, leadership is saying we're going to continue on and we're going to become profitable and the company's product is still really strong. You know, I think most employees believe that, but you have to imagine a lot of them are scared for their personal futures. So I think the new CEO is going to have to figure out how to motivate workers, how to cut a lot of costs, how to get um, you know, future investors thinking that this company still has a lot ahead of it. And that was Ellen Hewitt. I mean, Jason, it's just hit after hit after hit for WeWork at this point. And add to that, Kaylee, the news from Friday. Sources telling Bloomberg that WeWork is drawing scrutiny from the SEC over whether the company violated financial rules in the run-up to its failed IPO. Yep, there is still the open question of where does WeWork go from here and what's it going to look like at the end of the day? 
Earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down with Admiral Mike Mullen. It was ahead of the second annual Summit on Security hosted at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. And Bloomberg, we should point out, was a media sponsor of that event. Mullen, he served as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for Presidents Bush and Obama from 2007 to 2011. He was in the situation room with President Obama when SEAL Team 6 killed the world's most wanted terrorist, Osama bin Laden. Well, we had been hunting for bin Laden for intensely for years. And, um, and I think just the fact that it took so long, uh, it took a decade to, to get to that culminating point is indicative of how difficult a target he was and the care with which he took to hide and those around him. Um, uh, and it was an incredibly intense effort to do that. Obviously, we were doing other things. We had a war in Iraq. We had a war in Afghanistan. But we never lost focus. Uh, and in one of the one of the, uh, groups I'd like to give credit to, uh, uh, there was a special, I think, run on CNN a few years ago, the four ladies in the agency who in the late 80s really started and stayed after bin Laden when they had no resources, nobody was paying much attention to them. And so it had been going on for a long, long time. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it culminated, obviously, in better intelligence. And in the last few months, really, I didn't get involved until January in terms of what the possibilities might be. And, and that was right, because one of my concerns was, all of our concern was, if there'd been any indication that we knew, he would have, he would have left. And in fact, his, his principal advisors were telling him in that time frame that we actually killed him, uh, it was time to go. They were concerned he'd been there too long, right. and they needed to move. So had it not happened that night, uh, it could have been another decade before we found him. And what was that night like? People ask me of that famous picture, uh, and one of the reasons I think it's famous is because it really does capture the moment, and it, it was very, very tense. That said, it was a decision, and it was a courageous decision from my perspective on the part of President Obama, because we didn't actually know he was there. We had lots of circumstantial evidence. I viewed it as a bet-the-presidency uh, uh, decision that the president made, um, and, uh, and the night itself— uh, the actual night of the the killing uh, was we were into that operation, uh, you know, for two a couple days at that point. So it had it had been going for some time, and there had been rehearsals and lots of uh, preparation go on for literally four months in the event that we could pin him down. So uh, we we had planned uh, this down to. Uh, a level of detail that uh, would, in the end, allow us to kill him. But one of the things I'm, I like to remind people of is that same night in Afghanistan, there were 14 other missions similar to that that were, uh, that were carried out. Uh, and while strategically, this one certainly had the highest risk, but we have done thousands and thousands and thousands of these missions over the course of the years that we had been fighting. So I had every expectation that if he was there, we were going to either be able to capture or kill him. That said, it was tense, mm -hmm. and it wasn't over until it was over. And by that, I mean literally not just the killing him or getting him out or getting him back into Afghanistan, 
taking his DNA and positively identifying him, getting him on a helicopter, flying him through Pakistani airspace and getting him out to a carrier at sea where he could be buried consistent with his beliefs, his religious beliefs, which is what we did. And so when you think about that moment and you fast forward to today, what has it ultimately meant for the war on terror, which has not ended in many ways and has only become in some ways more complicated? Well, I think it, it, in, in terms of having a huge impact on the Al-Qaeda organization, it did. When you take out a leader like that, just as the very recent right. killing of Baghdadi has had a big impact on the ISIS organization. But it doesn't make the ideas go away. It doesn't make the aspiration go away. Uh, and it hasn't with uh, al-Qaeda, nor has Baghdadi's death uh, done that uh, with ISIS. And so I think we have to stay at this. We still we still are in a situation where where we are seen as the the evil empire, if you will, from the terrorist perspective, and they continue to come after us. And that was Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You can hear our entire conversation. It's this week's Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. And I should point out Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News, parent Bloomberg LP. He is the chairman of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. So, Kaylee, the holidays are right around the corner. What a shopping list we have here in Bloomberg Pursuits. Oh, yeah. I want everything on this list. Yeah. <laughs> if you buy everything on the list, you end up broke. So it's just a, an inspiration list. All right. So that's Chris Rouser. He's here with us, the editor of Pursuits, walking us through it all. So where do you want to start? Because I'll take one of each. Yeah. So we every year we try to think of a theme for our gift guide. And this year, the theme is things that are handmade. Um, it's always nice to give someone something that you know a lot of time went into it. Maybe a master craftsman worked on it. So on the first page of the section, we have this amazing marquetry poker set. So it's a box uh, with eight, uh, with a bunch of pieces, like 800 pieces, uh, cards and stuff. And it's all made with marquetry, which is little slivers of wood, which are inlaid into the box. Um, and it's it's, uh, you know, it's 1,200 pounds. It's not cheap, but it's one of 15. So, you know, not many people will have it. And so how do you oh. go about acquiring one of these if there's only 15 out there? So you, super competitive. You reach out to the artist, Alexandra Llewellyn. She's in the UK. And, uh, you know, she's making 15 of these, but she'll, she makes other versions. She also makes backgammon sets and stuff. So you reach out, see what she's got, and... Uh, Give it to a friend. All right. So a fan favorite apparently down on the Pursuits desk was the Claw for Crustaceans, yes. as you say. <laughs> it's a, the pick of the critter, you know. What? <laughs> did there. Uh, what is this? Okay. So if you are a Mainer like me, you've grown up uh, eating lobster. And you've probably used many different kinds of lobster picks. There are little narrow forks that go into like the legs or a narrow part of the shell to pull out meat. But a lot of them aren't actually that well designed. Often you get them, they're plastic in a restaurant. So this jeweler, Janie Cruz Garnett, who works out of the Upper East Side, uh, came by the office and was showing us her wares. And she had these silver hand-carved lobster picks, which are so ingenious and also expensive. Yeah. They, uh, they have a little clamshell carved into them so you can put your thumb in it. They're very textured so they don't become slippery uh, when they get covered in butter. And at the end of the little fork, they have a little harpoon hook, which is really, which actually most lobster picks don't have. So when you reach in to get the meat, it 
comes out really easily. I know that sounds crazy, but if you are a lobster person, <laughs> this item does not exist anywhere else and it's perfect. So you've had the chance to eat lobster with said item. Yes. And it makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a special occasion item. Right. They are made of silver uh, and they're $225 each. So it's, you don't want to lose them. Right. Yeah. So you're that that's a table setting that is going to set you back mm-hmm. before you even go buy your lobster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And those are the kinds of things that go missing after a dinner party. Totally. Uh, you know, you're serving some nice wine. All right. So maybe while you're doing all that, you're playing a record because yeah. why, not? why not? Yeah. You know, vinyl every year gets bigger and bigger. Um, and so we found a record player that's handmade that is heavier than ever. It's actually uh, 72 pounds and it's made by this guy, Tyler Hayes. Uh, the company is BDDW in Philadelphia. Uh, and he hand makes every part of it. The platter is marble which is why it costs so which is why it's so heavy um and the carcass which is what they call sort of the exterior is made of wood it's hand painted it's really beautiful got an incredible sound uh and it makes a very impactful gift well and it's a design piece just as much as it is an audio piece yeah it looks very cool it looks like it's out of star wars kind of and it'll set you back twenty two thousand dollars just a meager twenty two thousand dollars <laughs> yeah it's a bargain for sure uh also want to smell good of course yes. but this really you headline this a drop of perfume yes. we really are talking about a very small amount it is a very small amount of perfume uh the perfume company is called regime de fleur and they source these really exotic ingredients from around the world and they're so rare that they actually can't make the perfume every year because they can't get all of the ingredients necessarily so you buy this little tiny bottle it's two inches high it's like the size of a paperclip, uh but it has a very strong very beautiful scent that's very unusual and the bottles are hand painted by the artist uh and it'll set you back seven hundred Fifteen dollars for eight milliliters. This is a real product. This is <laughs> shocking. I mean, you get how many uses out of this? Uh, you only use a very, very small amount, so it actually lasts a long time. And think about how long it takes you to get through a bottle of perfume. Actually, it takes a long time. All right, you're, 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 you're <laughs> listeners, you cannot you cannot see Jason's face. Yeah, but yeah, I, it is my skeptical face. Yes. I think is the uh, way to put. It. All right, so after all that, I, I would love a drink, just a nice yes. drink, but it doesn't i can't just have my drink and just anything right yeah so we found this company saint louis which since 1586 has been making uh has been hand making glassware for like french royalty um and they just started they made a a collection of glassware that they're just releasing for the first time all together um and it's they're really beautiful they're sort of colored glass uh and we recommend that you maybe give the glasses to somebody with a bottle of ayuk which is uh, a new kind of liquor. It's made by a liquor company called Empirical Spirits. Uh, and it's um, it has a sort of a mezcal-ish flavor. It's very smoky. It's uh, distilled with uh, with pasilla chilies. Um, it's not actually a, a mezcal, but it tastes like it. And it's just an unusual thing. And it's just great to give somebody, if you're giving somebody a glass or a bowl, it's great to give something to go into it. Right. Well, and on those glasses too, just because this is all about those handmade gifts and the craftsmanship, it takes 15 workers, 10 days to shape one of these. Yeah. One glass. I mean, this is intricate stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people are going to put it in a special place. And <laughs> the glasses cost $2,300 for a set? Yeah. For the set. Okay. So that's better than just one. Yeah. A bargain. All right. I want to go deep on this one okay. because both Kaylee and I, when we saw this next one, immediately went to Frank, Frank Underwood, Underwood. Yes. House of Cards, this mm-hmm. rowing machine. I think that was from season one, actually, yes. was when you first see him. And it is an arresting just piece of 
art in some ways mm-hmm. that also doubles as a rowing machine. Right. So there are these. So Water Rower Inc. is this company, and they make uh, these rowing machines that are made with uh, Appalachian hardwoods, and then the the drum actually, where the normally it's a fan in the wind uh, or in the air, uh, is actually filled with water. So as you saw in House of Cards, when Frank is rowing, it has a sort of soothing, whooshing sound. It's really beautiful, um, and you know these are becoming increasingly popular. And popular and rowing is becoming increasingly mm-hmm. popular. It's because of CrossFit. It's also there's a bunch of rowing gyms. So you're seeing more and more of these in houses. And it's $1,400. So, you know, that's that's expensive, but it's not crazy for a piece of gym equipment. Less than a Peloton. See, there you go. Less than a Peloton. Uh, and it looks lovely. And as you say, and I'm sure you guys considered a lot of different, because I know you like exercise yes. uh, in this section, you probably considered a lot of different things. And this, as you say, sort of checks all the boxes around craftsmanship and yeah it like really that. does it's uh, except for the plastic for the drum with the water everything is handmade so they're all a little bit unique and i i am a, a fitness junkie like jason is and i hate rowing actually <laughs> yeah i, I don't rowed, like I it rowed at in all. high school yeah. and college and i promised myself i never would do it again but i've been on one of these and they are really beautiful and can you row vigorously on it without you know fearing damage yeah this piece oh yeah, of yeah they're like indestructible wow yeah. all right so go buy one if you row it off, I'm going to skip ahead because <laughs> yes. what you're rowing off could be one of the most exquisite and ridiculous pastries that I have ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. You did not bring us any, which is a strike against you. It did not last long. But I'm sure it went fast on the desk. Tell us. It, just give us the size and scope of this pastry. So a Queen Amon is, um, is from Brittany in France, and uh, it's basically a croissant. But it's, it's sort of shaped in a, like a muffin shape, but it's formed like a croissant, which is layers of dough and butter. But then they also add a ton of sugar in there. So it's like a butter sugar bomb. And normally you get them kind of muffin size, but at Manresa Bread in San Francisco, they make it um, like cake size. So you get sort of an eight inch huge one. And since there's so much sugar on the bottom, it all caramelizes. So it's actually like sort of a, an ice skating rink of sugar on the bottom. And actually by weight, so it's 500 grams and by weight it's 50% butter and sugar. So there's 250 grams of sugar in these things. There's 150 grams of sugar and 100 grams of butter. Not at all unhealthy. No. Wow. You got to row a lot. <laughs> got to row, row a lot. Are a fantastic. Lot you have no idea. Did you uh, eat an entire Because I didn't one? bring you one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really do have no idea. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. So if you're not rowing and you're not eating, maybe you're playing golf. That's sort of a middle ground yeah. there. A beautiful putter uh, or a set of putters that you feature in the magazine. Yeah. So, you know... We, ta- we talked about a lot of sports equipment and uh, with golf clubs, there's a lot of physics that go into the swing clubs, right? So there's kind of mathematics that go into it. Um, but putters, you can be a little more creative with because it's actually much more personal preference. You're not swinging that much. Um, and so we found this putter, which is hand forged, and it has these inserts that are made through a Japanese process called makume gane. Uh, and it's it's basically a process of folding together different kinds of different metals over and over and over. And the it's so there are these inserts made through that process in the back of the putter and they look really beautiful. And it's a process that was used on the hilts of samurai swords. So if you the more rich and powerful you were, the more times the metal was folded. Um, and that so you know, it's not really used much anymore, but it's in use in these putters and people really become attached to it. That was Pursuits editor Chris Rouser and Jason. I did some math. Are you ready? Ready for this? Yes. If you buy one of each thing on that list, how much do you think that's going to cost you? 50K? More. 
$95,000. Someone extra special for Christmas. (laughs) That's going to wrap up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Kaylee Lyons. And for Carol Masser, be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Get that at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.